0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting Bluehost.com. That's Bluehost.com.
1: Welcome to the online broadcast. I'm your host, Brett Johnson. The United States Secret Service called me the original internet godfather. Now, what did it take to get that title? 39 felonies, a place on the United States most wanted list, an escape from prison, and I built the first organized cybercrime community. It was called Shadow Crew. It was a precursor to today's darknet and darknet markets, and it laid the foundation for the way modern cybercrime channels still operate today. Of course, I went to prison, and during my time behind the fence, I turned my life around. Today, I work hard to protect individuals and companies against the type of person I used to be. This week on the online broadcast, we are honored to have Michael F. D. Dianaya coming on to talk to us about collaboration, what that means, and why it's so important. But before we get to that, it's time for the Cyber Suck News Report. That's right, all the cybersecurity news that only a criminal would love, and maybe those who are trying to stop crime. First on, this comes from HousingWire.com. Fifth Third Bank facing its own fake account fiasco. So those who may not be in the know, of course, we know that Wells Fargo, and just in fairness, so that everyone knows full disclosure, I bank with Wells Fargo. Why? Well, I like to think that one criminal deserves another, so I choose Wells Fargo. Of course, now it seems like we know that Wells Fargo was setting up fake accounts for people. You know, they wouldn't tell them they would open up loan accounts or credit card accounts. They just went ahead and did it. That way it made Wells Fargo look even bigger than they were. Of course, now if a person did that, someone would be in prison. A bank does that. Wells Fargo does that. And not much happens. Well, it seems that Fifth Third did that as well. Now they're going through their own fiasco. So now I've got not just Wells Fargo I can bank with because, you know, one criminal deserves another, but it looks like I've got Fifth Third that I could also choose to bank with and might be quite pleased with the way they act, or maybe not. Moving right along. Oh, here's a nice one. This is from businessinsider.com. The headline. A former Microsoft engineer stole more than $10 million from the company and used it to buy a $1.6 million lakefront home and a Tesla, because there's nothing better in Seattle than a Tesla, is what I guess. Except maybe toilet paper, since there's none to be had anywhere in the nation because of people's fear, uncertainty, and doubt over the coronavirus. But this Microsoft engineer, he took advantage of their gift card program, siphoned one point they siphon 10 million dollars off the gift card program he was an engineer so he covers it up uses those proceeds to go and buy his ass a lakefront house and a tesla and it's untelling what else he did needless to say they called him needless to say i'm sure he's no longer working for microsoft hopefully he'll get a lot of time out of this that's what we can hope for but this is an insider and what we need to understand is is that when how does insider fraud happen? This guy named Creasy, he he, he creates this thing called the fraud triangle. So there's three legs to how insider fraud occurs. Those legs are, are those, those three areas, those three things is there has to be opportunity, there has to be pressure, and there has to be justification. So somewhere, this engineer, this guy who decides he's going to defraud Microsoft, this engineer, his name is, Vladimir Kazvushak, I guess. I don't, I can't really say it. But this engineer, he had to have pressure. Somewhere there was pressure. Maybe he felt he didn't have enough money. Maybe he needed more money to satisfy some girlfriends. Maybe whatever that is. Then he had to have, have opportunity. So the opportunity, of course was he was an engineer. He, was, he had access to this gift card program. He knew how to siphon the money off and then he knew how to cover it up. So that was the opportunity. And finally, the justification because what Creasy says is that that insider person, that person that's going to commit company fraud from inside of the company, that person has to have pressure on them you know, bills are due, not making enough money, whatever that is, then they have to have the opportunity. Where are they going to steal the money from? And then finally, unless they can justify it, you know, I'm feeding my family. Uh, The company was mean to me. They deserve it. They can afford it. Those types of justifications. Unless there's a justification there, the criminal won't do it or the insider won't commit insider fraud. Now, this article doesn't mention what the justification was, and I'm sure that Vladimir here is, is saving that justification for when he's sentenced. We'll see. But I'm hoping that he, too, gets a lot of time. Ah, here is another article. So this one is titled, and this is from the Loss Prevention Magazine. The title is, Why is Friendly Fraud on the rise, or why friendly fraud is on the rise is the name of the title of the article. And it's kind of interesting to the first way the first paragraph starts out. So I just wanna read the first paragraph here. It's been nearly five years since the coalition comprised of Europay, MasterCard, and Visa shifted the liability for payment fraud from the banks to the merchant. In that time, chip cards have become ubiquitous. Payments made using a swipe have officially jumped the shark and the face of fraud has become friendly. I'll just go on here and talk about what loss prevention media says is friendly fraud. And that's the next paragraph. Friendly fraud as it's called occurs when a cardholder disputes legitimate charges with their credit card provider, forcing a refund under the false pretense that the merchant made an error. This happens when the merchants are ill-equipped to accept EMV payments, the chips, meaning they don't use a chip-enabled card reader during the payment transaction. If a restaurant guest, for example, argues the charges in the absence of a chip card reader, banks will reverse the transaction with little to no recourse by the restaurant operator. Okay? You got that? Now, Now, Forbes also has an article out on friendly fraud. And its title is Many Unhappy Returns, How Consumer Abuse Leads to Retail Revenue Leakage. And what they say friendly fraud is, they liken it to shoppers filing false reports that a package never arrived, came damaged, or did not live up to the description on a merchant's Website. So, a 2018 report by the National Retail Federation found that retailers estimate an average of 11% of their annual sales will will be returned, with an average of 8% of returns determined to be fraudulent. Now, how much money is that? So, fraudulent returns, friendly fraud or friendly fraud overall, $15 billion. $15 billion. Now, that's a lot of money, but what what you're not realizing is, is that organized cybercrime when they see a profit potential like with synthetic fraud they co-opt it they make it efficient and then they run with it and this is exactly this is exactly what happened with friendly fraud it starts with Amazon so a few years ago this was when Jesus is probably 5 years ago so five, maybe even 6 years ago so 5 6 years ago on Evolution Marketplace, which was a dark web marketplace, we started to see postings of criminal members there. And they were saying that they were making $10,000 a month committing Amazon refund fraud. And the response was, you guys are full of it. No one is able to make $10,000 a month pulling refund fraud. But you know what? They weren't full of it. They were making $10,000 a month doing refund fraud. And the way it worked back then, and it worked like this for several years, the way it worked was that a person would sign up for Amazon Prime, the, the trial, and they would use their credit card, their name, their address. They would order a MacBook Pro. Amazon would ship that MacBook Pro out. It would arrive two days later. The driver would leave it on the porch. Criminal, this guy was committing. Friendly fraud, he would get the laptop, then he would call or text Amazon and say, Hey, I didn't get the package. Amazon would then send another MacBook Pro out. It would arrive two days later. The delivery driver would leave it on the porch. The guy would get the laptop off the porch, the criminal would. He would get on the phone again or text Amazon and he would say, Hey, I, I didn't get that either. At which point, Amazon would give a, a full refund. So, what you were seeing is this guy was able to get two MacBook Pros and his money back. And they were going hog wild with this stuff. And it just wasn't MacBooks. It was 65-inch TVs. It was living room sofas. Everything out of the gate. Amazon was wide, and I mean wide open. So wide open that criminal forums and marketplaces had entire sections dedicated strictly to Amazon refund fraud. If you didn't have the confidence to do it yourself, that's fine. There were a whole slew of providers that would charge anywhere from 10 to 15% and would handle the refund for you. That's it. 10 to 15% of whatever the order amount was. So this this specific type of fraud, this friendly fraud, this friendly fraud that was co-opted by organized cybercrime elements redefined redefined cybercrime as we knew it. Before this type of refund fraud go, comes into existence and shows exactly how profitable it can be. Before that happened, a new cyber criminal entering the environment, he would typically come in, he would buy stolen credit card data. Be new, he wouldn't really understand how to use the stolen credit card data, so he would try to defraud Amazon or Apple, and he would fail miserably. And a lot of the times, he might just stop his criminal career there Go back and get a job or continue school or whatever he was doing. That doesn't happen like that now because of what the profit potential people saw with the Amazon refund fraud. What happens is criminals now come in this criminal environment and they look at techniques like this friendly fraud type thing. So that, and they immediately start making $10,000 a month while they learn how to commit credit card fraud or synthetic fraud or tax fraud or any number of things like that. So they're making money immediately until Amazon decides, Hey, we've had enough of this. So we're going to require police reports for these accounts that are, that are wanting their refunds. So Amazon says we need a police report. Well, Amazon didn't realize that, say one thing about cyber criminals, we are very good about testing things. Now today you can still this was this started 5 or 6 years ago continued wide open for 2 to 3 years until Amazon decides to start locking things down. Then what do criminals do well then they look at Apple, they look at the Microsoft store, they look at other businesses and smaller retailers and merchants and it's still very active today. As a result what Amazon does and I'm sure everyone has seen this by now you have a delivery from Amazon. And if it's an Amazon driver or some of these other delivery drivers, they'll take a picture of the, the item left on the porch. And they try to, that way, in case someone claims it was never delivered, well, yeah, hey, guess what, ass? We, we've got a picture of the box on your porch. It was obviously delivered. So that is a, a pretty good deterrent a lot of the time against this type of friendly fraud. But you know what's interesting is, is that friendly fraud is and, and increase is going to come on and talk about this more in depth from a, from a merchant point of view and, and some of the protections that need to be done. And, and you know, my opinion is, is that, you know, send out the package, make sure that you have a signature required or direct signature required, even better that way it has to be signed for by the person that their name is on the box. You have to show ID for that. So direct signature required. Also don't allow diverting of, of shipment. I understand that that still happens sometimes regardless of whether the merchant wants it to or not. You know, the, the criminal tries to talk the merchant into having the item delivered to, uh, or not the merchant, but the uh, the delivery company, UPS FedEx. They try to talk them into delivering to one of these pickup places for UPS or FedEx, and sometimes it works. So you try to stop that. You uh, require direct signature, um, some other techniques as well. And of course, there are these um, chargeback guarantee merchants available that um, will help protect you as well that, as that. But end of the end of the day, the problem is is that it's extremely difficult. In case no one has said this out loud, and they may be scared to say it, but it's extremely difficult to stop friendly fraud. It's extremely difficult for For someone like, say, Nike, a person buys a $150 pair of shoes from Nike. They're delivered. And then that person says, hey, I didn't get it. Well, what's going to happen? Well, Nike's so big, they're not going to worry about $150. They're probably just going to send out another pair of shoes. Or they'll give a refund or whatever the the customer wants at that point. And when you see when consumers, a lot of consumers that are opportunists, see that this is successful like that, well, then it's, it's something that some people take advantage of. So that's one of the things that, that you have to watch out for is that. So moving right along, article from Tech Republic. Cyber criminals raking in $1.5 trillion dollars every year. So cyber criminals raking in 1.5, that's how profitable Cybercrime is 1.5 trillion dollars. Now let's put that into perspective. All right, and this is the TechRepublic.com that mentions this, so I want to give them credit for that. And this is what they say: Cybercrime is even more lucrative than the technology used to commit these acts, with revenues from Apple, Amazon, Facebook, Tesla, and Microsoft bringing in a combined total of $761 billion in 2019. So all those companies together brought in $761 billion in revenue. Cybercrime, though, generates, for criminals, $1.5 trillion. So it's swamping it. It's swamping it. Now, the question is, and that's why we're talking to Michael F.D. Anaya today. The question is, when I, why is that possible? When I started my career as a public speaker and consultant, when I started as a legal individual, what happened was I was at the CNP conference. It was the third paid speaking engagement that I had. And it was the first time that I met Carice Hendrick. And I asked her when we sat down for lunch, first time I met her face to face, when we sat down for lunch, the first thing out of my mouth was, hey, I want to ask you a question. And she was like, yeah. And I was like, the bad guys are all about working together sharing information collaborating you good guys you suck at it so what's the deal now i was a little naive i didn't um, i didn't understand regulations because criminals don't obey regulations criminals don't care about gdpr hipaa or anything else like that so i didn't understand privacy concerns regulations stuff like that i didn't understand that some companies use information as a competitive edge that they'll keep quiet and let, you know, about the fraud they're experiencing or the crime or cybersecurity issues they're experiencing because maybe they fix it over time and they know that their competitors haven't fixed it yet, so they'll let them get hit with it for a while. So I didn't understand all that kind of stuff. And, and over the past few years, I've come to realize that, but I've also come to realize that at the end of the day, until the good guys get to be as good at sharing information, at working together, as the bad guys, until the good guys can do that like the bad guys can, the good guys will always, will always be fighting a losing battle. When I started Counterfeit Library and Shadow Crew, and it continues like that to this day, for the most part, we were an open source environment. We understood that we needed to share information across the board with each other, that it was important that all members become educated. Because the more educated our group was, the more money we would be able to steal, the more profit we would make, the better it was for the overall segment of cybercrime. Now, over the years, what we see is because you see a lot of law enforcement on these, these networks, these criminal networks, you see a lot of security professionals on these criminal networks, we see that a lot of the information anymore is not publicly discussed. That does not mean that does not mean that information is still not shared within cybercrime environments. If you look at, and I've mentioned this before, and I'll say it again, there are three necessities to cybercrime. Those necessities are gathering the data, committing the crime, and cashing out. All three necessities have to work in conjunction. If they do not, then the crime fails. The problem, the problem is that a single criminal, a specific criminal, cannot, cannot do all three things. That criminal is good in one thing. Sometimes he's good in two. Very rarely can he do all three. So that is why these criminal networks, the marketplaces, the dark web and surface web groups, that's why they exist. Or one of the reasons they exist is so that those criminals can network with other criminals who are good in areas where he is not. So he may be able to gather the data, meaning that he can steal credit card information. He can steal people's social security numbers or or items like that. But he doesn't know how to commit crime with them. I mean, he has committed crime, right? But he doesn't know how to use that stolen data to commit crime. Or he doesn't know how to cash it out, how to launder the money properly. So he has to network with other people within the cybercrime environment to profit by that, okay? So that that's how this works. And it's all about, from the criminal point of view, from the cybercrime point of view, working together to maximize profit, okay? So while you go on a marketplace like Empire or you go on a – a discussion channel like DREAD, which is the the Reddit of the dark web, you go on there and you'll see some of these discussions. You'll see things being shared openly and discussed and talked about. Now, it's not as open as it used to be during Shadow Cruise days or Counterfeit Libraries days, simply because we've got more law enforcement that are, that are aware. Law enforcement has seeded those groups pretty well. Uh, Security professionals visit those groups all the time. We've got uh, dark web monitoring companies, everything else that try to capture as much data and discussions as they possibly can. So what you see is is that just the very superficial conversations will take place, very superficial. For the more in-depth conversations about sharing information and networking together, collaborating, those take place on smaller and smaller encrypted messaging channels, Wicker, Wicker Rooms, Jabber, Telegram, places like that, WhatsApp. At that point is where the the real conversation about open source and Intel sharing information networking together takes place. But don't make a mistake about it. Criminals are all about collaborating. They're about sharing information. They're about working together. The problem, of course, is that the good guys are not. They're not. Either they can't because of regulation and privacy concerns or they won't because of a competitive edge or what have you. We are fortunate today, we are extremely fortunate today, to have Michael F.D. Anaya from Atlanta, Georgia to come in and talk to us about the need for collaboration among the good guys. And today on the online broadcast, we are pleased to have Michael Anaya on as our guest. Michael, thank you so
0: much for coming on. Of course, I appreciate you. Let me chat with you and your listeners.
1: Well, I, I tell you, I, I am completely honored and I am thrilled that you agreed to come on. You know, I sent out the message yesterday on LinkedIn, and you responded, and I was like, seriously, he's he's willing to come on and talk to us. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm completely thrilled. For the audience who, who doesn't know who you are, please introduce yourself, tell us who you are, what you
0: do, all that good stuff. Of course. Uh, so, my name is Michael F.D. Anaya. I just transitioned um, from my, current, my previous role, where I was the head of cyber investigations for a startup named DevCon. I'm still with them. I'm on a board of advisors with them now, but now I'm full-time. I'm the head of cyber risk operations for a, another startup based out of San Francisco called Expanse. And so I just started, so I'm excited about that opportunity. Uh, but prior to all that, I was a special agent with the FBI. I was with the FBI for about 14 years. I started my tenure back in 2005. I was a cyber investigator for about eight years in Los Angeles, California. And my focus was data breaches specifically Right. And then did that for, again, like eight years. I arrested and, and indicted a number of various hackers, as well as <laughs> other individuals who are facilitating fraud schemes. Sure. And then uh, two years, I got promoted. And then in two years, at headquarters, I did the leadership development. I helped the Bureau kind of build some programs for leadership development internally. And then I got another promotion. And that's where I went to uh, Atlanta, Georgia where I'm currently at now. And I was selected to be the Cyber Squad Supervisor. And then uh, then I was basically running about 15 various individuals. I supervised agents, computer scientists, which were similar to data scientists and analysts, sort of addressing nation state and criminal cyber threats. Oh, wow. So, (laughs)
1: you know, you, you go through this and I'm sitting here thinking, Wow. That's a resume.
0: <laughs> I mean,
1: So you were 14 years an agent. That's correct. Were you, were you in law enforcement before that or military? Or you just go straight into the bureau? No, I just ran the
0: bureau. Prior to that, I was a software developer in Dallas, Texas, working on banking software. Oh, outstanding! So, yeah, so it's just very not traditional. You mentioned military or from the law enforcement; those are very traditional paths into the FBI, right? As well as attorneys, and um, those are the big three, I think, and accountants. So, so um,
1: coming from a software field, did you did you start out with the FBI in cyber? That's correct. Outstanding, outstanding. So, <laughs> I'd say I, I I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on. And, and you said you had arrested several hackers. One of the questions I've got, because I've got my own theory about all this stuff, but one of the questions I've got is: is is from what you've seen of the people that were out there breaking the law, is there some common thread that runs among these people? Is it, are the demographics similar? Are uh, um, you know we know they're not all four hundred pound kids in their mom's basements. And so what what are the similarities that you saw among these groups, among these
0: attackers? So I'm glad you brought that up. There's a lot of things that I've sort of observed. Um, I've sort of categorized in the four distinct uh, observations I've made. Mm-hmm. So one of them I classify as justification. Basically, we as people can justify almost any action. So every, uh, every uh, criminal, even just beyond hackers, just criminals I've arrested, um, they basically had some sort of justification for what they did. And we as people can all relate to this to some degree, whether we'd like to admit it or not. Um, I talk about, I I frame it as what I call the red light paradox. So if I were to ask you, um, Brett, would you run a red light? What would your reaction be? Who's watching? <laughs> <laughs> and and, and been, you're hitting the nail on the head when you <laughs> said that because if you had some like a, a police officer there like watching the intersection, you wouldn't run the red line. Right. That's situational. And what I typically do when I talk about that is I say there's a difference at time of day. If I ask the question of someone at 3 p.m., generally speaking, their answer is no. Right. I'm not going to run it. But if all of a sudden I change the variable a little bit and I say, what about 3 a.m.? No one's around and you're just sitting there at an empty intersection. All of a sudden it changes. And the reason why that resonated with me when I was in the FBI, I basically uh, did arrests and search warrants at very early times. And in L.A., that's kind of where, that's when they started. We had to to basically prepare around 5 a.m. So many times wow. I was driving to a location at 4 a.m., make sure oh, I got geez. there on time. Right, right. Well, I'm sitting at lights. And it's you know 4 a.m. in the morning, no one's driving around. And I'm just kind of like, why am I sitting here? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is dumb. And so the first time I ran the red light, I felt really guilty. I sure. felt like just tremendous guilt. Um, and the second time I felt that same guilt, but after the 100th time, <laughs> I stopped feeling guilt. I stopped feeling guilt. And each time I justified it. I justified it. And I think most people would probably come to the same terms I did. Look, I'm about to go facilitate some initiative that was, you know, I'm deputized to do to some degree, but also no one's around. Sure. So I ran the red light, I justified it. Uh, and I, I highlight the next observation I made, which when I said I did it the 100th time, I didn't feel any guilt. And that's the second observation I've made is the length of exposure. So generally speaking, the people I've arrested, the longer they've been doing it, the more normal it becomes. It just becomes part of their identity. One of the guys I arrested, he was facilitating a fraud scheme. And he'd been doing it for about two and a half to three years. Um, Initially, he started doing it because the employer did not promote him. Right. so he basically decided well i'm irritated i'm angry i've been wronged, so i'm going to make up the money i i was in theory in his perspective theoretically owed by stealing from the organization um what he was able to do would go unnoticed or undetected i actually just stumbled upon him oh geez and so Fast forward, I interrogate him and I ask the question, which everyone wants to know is why did you do it? And he explained why he did it. Like I said before, he felt wrong and he felt justified in his action. But that was three or about three years ago prior to him actually talking to me. Well, fast forward, he wasn't angry anymore. And I remember this very distinctly. I asked him, well, why did you continue to do it? And he kind of had a blank stare and he really thought about it. He said, honestly, I really don't know i just it just became who I was oh wow it it was fascinating to me, um, and he had a wife, kids um he had a professional career, so it was just fascinating, and so that resonated, but it was that length of exposure you know I've I got think. to tell you uh, I've got to tell you michael you're you're saying this
1: you know the and i I definitely want to hear the other two two areas as well that you're talking about, but you know you talk about justification. I was all about that. You know, I, I told myself I did it for my family, my wife, stripper, girlfriend, sister, and, and got to the point where I believed that. And then you, you mentioned how it becomes normal and what you just said about the gentleman with that blank stare. And he says, he didn't know I was at that point. You know, I started breaking the law when I was 10, it became a normal thing for me when I began cybercrime. You know, committing those frauds and scams and credit card stuff online and all that. Initially, yeah, I was, I was worried about it and concerned, but as every day goes by, that keeps dropping down and down and down until that becomes your life. I mean, that was my, my life. I, it wasn't, there was never a, a thought about going out and getting a job. <laughs> you know, I, was just, I was just the guy who stole money. And it's, it just, it, it really strikes me because you're absolutely right on that. Um, please continue
0: please. Thank you for sharing that. Um, The other thing was what I witnessed was corrective action or the lack thereof. Um, Generally speaking, in those examples, there was no corrective element. Um, For me, running red lights, I never got pulled over. No one ever told me not to do it. Uh, For that one example I shared with you, uh, no one caught him. The only corrective action he had was when he was staring at me. Uh, That was the first Time he dealt with the consequences, and the nut. There's another hacker. Uh, this one's an actual legitimate hacker. Uh, I arrested as well. The funny thing is, he, in fact, was in his parents' basement. <laughs> he wasn't for <laughs> <orange> or <pants. laughs> He He's not or uh, <laughs> He's probably. I want to say one. 50 in terms of his weight but uh he was was a kid he was a kid for all intents and purposes sure Uh, the fascinating thing with him when i interrogated him and i was chatting with him building rapport and that's what you do when you talk to these individuals is you build rapport with them most people aren't going to talk to you outright by the way no one's going to as you you might not be aware of this or you might be because of your background your experience but Generally speaking, when you're sitting across the table for law enforcement, you're not really interested in like having a heart to heart. Your first focus is how do I get out of this? That's exactly
1: the focus. (laughs) 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 I I don't want to be anybody's buddy. I just want out of this mess that I've gotten myself in and, and you're right. I mean, the, the, the guys on the other end of the table, they, they, you know, they go and get you something to eat. They ask if you're <laughs> thirsty. They try to build that rapport because let's be honest, anyone who's watched that another 48 or some show like that, most criminals end up
0: telling on themselves, a lot of, you know, a lot too. It's true. It's true. But so, I mean, you have to, it takes a certain skill set not, and not everyone in law enforcement has it. Sure. Uh, so I was lucky enough to have this skill. So this particular hacker eventually, I and mean, this interrogation took about six or seven hours Oh, geez. At the end of it, you know, he was sharing a lot with me. But he talked about how he was working on his third iteration of the, the particular piece of malware. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so he would have continued to develop more and more malware and become sure. more and more sophisticated. His malware is extremely sophisticated. He's right. a peer to peer botnet. Uh, So anyway, it was it was fascinating. And that's where I got that corrective action element. And then the final thing I witnessed is just the environment. We kind of talked about it. You mentioned you started when you were so young, at 10. That many times is where hackers or criminals. That's where it begins at such a young age. And if you think about your peer group and your influence, that influence is so paramount. And this, I, th- this example I witnessed from not cybercrime, but for just street gangs. I, I did some work briefly in Los Angeles, working uh, with some of the agents there who went after various street gangs and talking to some of the subjects. Some of the people I arrested, too, believe it or not, in the cyber community were people who were part of a gang of some sort. Um, and when you talk to them, they're very different, uh, they have no fear. Right. When you're across the table for them, they're not impressed by the letters FBI. <laughs> <laughs> They've seen these letters before.
1: They're used to those. <laughs> they're, exactly, they're used to them. <laughs>
0: Exactly. But it, it's fascinating to see, like, literally no reaction. Generally speaking, if you think about it, if, you, if your listeners were to take a moment and pause and think if the FBI were knocking on the door, literally, vast majority of people are terrified. Right. Uh, and, and they should be. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but when you're a person who's sort of been indoctrinated into the criminal world at a young age, in a way, it's a rite of passage to go to prison. It's a very, very different world. And that's really dealing with these individuals, seeing their, their look of without fear or remorse for their actions. Right. I realize that doesn't happen overnight. And that really goes back to that environmental element. Um, and you go back to my example of running a red light amongst people in law enforcement. If we were to talk about it, it's, it's somewhat more common just because again, when you're doing these operations at a early time of the morning, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to sit the light for two minutes sure. while it's changing cycles. So you talk amongst a law enforcement, like, Oh yeah, it's not a big deal. And again, it's that environmental component. And, and that's really the final observation I made. And this, every single individual that I was able to interrogate successfully, because not all of them talk, they all hit some of these four points, or actually, sorry, all these four points. I would agree. I would agree. You know, I'm thinking about my
1: own life. And one of the things that I, that I, and Lord knows I didn't mean for the show to turn into this, you know, Brett Johnson personal thing, (laughs) but uh, (laughs) you know, I, I, I've been having issues with, with, trying to reconcile my environment, that, that upbringing that I had, you know, my mom was a criminal on the side of the family. My dad was basically the enabler, but my mother and that entire side of the family, they were scammers, fraudsters, pot growers, things like that. And I'm having trouble reconciling that with my choices as an adult, because I I take responsibility. You know, when I'm an adult, no one makes me do anything. I choose to break the law. I choose to victimize people. Um, and it, you mentioned the the corrective action as well. I mean, I, I, there, were, there, were, there were stages where I wasn't identified by law enforcement and they would come and talk to me. But as far as any, you know, throwing you in jail or anything like that, nah, that never happened. And And to feed into what you were saying about the gangs, I think by that point I was indoctrinated enough to law enforcement and wasn't really scared of it. It was, how can I manipulate my way out of this? And in turn, learn not to do this type of crime again so that I'm not identified again. Uh, And I kept growing like that. It's just um, I I really like the way you've broken that down to those four areas. It really hits home really hard.
0: Well, I'm, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if the correct response is I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm glad now. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. And I think the reason why, I've broken it down this way is because I think it's easy for people on the outside to judge. Sure. And, um, the end of the day, one of the key components of all of these aspects is context. Um, it's easy for us to sit back and judge somebody when we read a news headline, right? or we're skimming the internet and you, or you hear something about your neighbor and you make a quick assessment. And I do the same thing we all do to some degree it's until you actually talk to people that you realize they're just people They made decisions They made bad decisions or good decisions or whatever right. they may be but a lot of times you have to understand the context of the decision and that was the nice thing that working in law enforcement afforded me i had this privilege of actually talking to these individuals to really understand them um and i was in a unique position to do so and, and i did not the various individuals that i arrested I never wanted to drop the hammer on any of them. Right. It really was just trying to find the most appropriate course of action that made the most sense. And the context was pivotal. Like that kid I mentioned, the hacking component, mm-hmm. the hacker, uh, sophisticated piece of malware. The key component that helped him out when we talk about context was he never distributed it. He never sold it he was the only one who was in possession of that malicious software. Sure. Once he was taken offline, it eventually just died because it became a nerd. Right. If that were changed, if he were to have monetized the usage of that particular piece of malware, if he had gone on to the dark net, sold it, distributed it, very, very different outcome. But you have to then understand the context. And with him, it's even a little bit deeper because he had some uh, mental elements that were in play. Okay. So these are all various things that law enforcement agents or people who work in law enforcement should deploy.
1: No, I I want to tell you, I appreciate you saying that because, you know, when I was a bad guy, it was us against them. You know, the, the, the bad guy, we bad guys, we were, you know, law enforcement is going to try to put you away as long as they possibly can. They are not your friend. They don't care. They've got a hard on to try to get you. But as a good guy now, I don't see that. What I see now is exactly what you said. It's, it's nothing personal. If anything, it's, it's law enforcement. They, re- they really just want the best outcome. You know, you've messed up. You've, you've had some bad choices. You have a price to pay, but we don't want to really hammer you. We just want to make sure that you're okay and you don't do this again, but you have to be punished for it at the same time. Uh, so that's what I see now. And, and you know, when I was in prison, you, you mentioned, you know, the choices, um, And that's what I saw too, is it's most of the people there. And I was, I was at four or five different prisons, but uh, I guess over the course of, you know, my seven years behind bars that I may have, may have met two evil people. The other thousands of people that were in there, they were just there. They had made some bad choices. They were just trying to get through it and not mess with anything, you know, but
0: uh, I really appreciate you, you pointing that out. I really do. Well, I mean... But I love hearing that because um, that's sort of in line with kind of my exposure and experience with various individuals. So yeah, you're it's, right. It's sort of, kind of get the affirmation and the theory. Yeah, you're you're
1: that. absolutely right with that. You are. You're absolutely right, uh, Michael. What I you know what we talked about yesterday about when you came on was this idea of collaborating, and from the bad guy side, I mean, when Shadow Crew was you know so you had Counterfeit Library, Shadow Crew, then you had Carter Planet. Those three sites, when we built those, when I built two of them, Dimitri Goldobov built the third, but when those went up, we were all about sharing information, about that free flow of information between members, of teaching members how to become better criminals, of sharing exploits, with the idea that at the end of the day, we educate more people to be better criminals, and by doing that, we make more money, and not only that, but we stay safer as criminals. And so when I began this career as a legal person, Carice Hendrick was one of the people who helped me out. And when I finally met her in person, the first question out of my mouth was, you know, Carice, the bad guys are all about collaborating, sharing information. I don't see that really at all with the good guys. So what's going on? And I was naive at that point. I didn't understand regulations because, you know, criminals don't care about GDPR or HIPAA or anything like that. But, uh, that's what I wanted to talk to you about is, is that idea of collaboration? Because now that I'm a good guy, I'm, you know, I'm, i talk at the CISO Academy in Quantico and a lot of that message is about companies sharing information, not just with law enforcement, but with competitors where they can, things like that. So what, what's been your experience as far as collaborating with companies or companies collaborating with themselves? Do you, are you like me? Do you think it's a necessity that, that we need
0: that type of collaboration? I definitely do. One of the things when I was in the FBI, I was always trying to strive to help build those collaborative relationships. You mentioned like the CISO Academy. I was one of the ambassadors that would go out there um, twice a year when it was held to meet with the CISOs and build those relationships. So it was very important because the reality is when things happen in the wild, Mm -hmm. the FBI isn't always aware of them. And they, it's required it's required not requirement but it's a necessity for the FBI to effectively do their job. They need people to actually share that information, um, and so that's pivotal. And it's unfortunate. What you're saying is true. And I started formulating some observations again in this arena as to why people aren't sharing in the private sector. Sure. And a lot of the unfortunate elements is it's just misinformation. It's that executives of major organizations from even senior management all the way up to the board of directors don't have a positive or familiar relationship with law enforcement and how law enforcement works.
1: I agree. I do. I absolutely agree. And and I've seen that time and time again, that a company is breached or there's a problem in the company. And for some reason, they think that law enforcement is going to come in and try to charge the people that were victimized. Um, You know, that, that misinformation is going on. And when I started talking at, uh, at, at the CISO Academy there, I mean, they were very adamant. You know, they had the different CISOs in the room and they were very adamant. Hey, we're not after you. We just want to stop the bad guys. And I think it's important that we, that we try to get that message out because my, my thing is, is that until we get on the same level that the criminals are at of sharing information, we're always going to be behind. We're always going to be, reactive and not proactive. So we have to, we have to level that playing field of sharing information of, of getting word out of, of not being afraid to contact law
0: enforcement. Exactly. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that, um, I came up with sort of an analogy that kind of talks about this a little bit further. Okay. I, I frame it, the neighborhood watch effect. So the best way to describe it, is I kind of think about neighborhoods. So imagine you're new to a neighborhood, you and your family are excited to live in your new home, looking, like I said, right at the heart of the neighborhood, looking for all these new experiences. One of the experiences is likely not a break-in. But what if there's a series of break-ins, starting with the outer ed- edges? Sure. What if no one reported them, not even on next door, and law enforcement was never alerted to that activity? So what would happen? The threat would escalate. Absolutely. Undeterred, the actors would continue to make their way to the center of the neighborhood, breaking into home after home, until they arrived at the heart of the neighborhood, which is your home. Now, I know it's an alarming thought, but that analogy mirrors what happens in the corporate landscape when organizations do not share data breaches or indicators of compromise or threat intelligence with the appropriate authorities. Threat actors will continue to escalate their activity, moving from organization to organization until your organization, unfortunately, is next. And it goes back to what I was sharing with you earlier about those observations. This is the component of the lack of corrective action. When it comes to hackers, the corrective action many times is law enforcement. Companies can do a lot. They, and when I go to security conferences, I hear protection, defense, defense, how to protect internal <laughs> assets. And it's fascinating. It's good that they're focused on that, but I never hear about how to share with law enforcement. That's right. You never hear that. You never, never. hear that. And I, I brought it up a few times post uh, bureau and I get these weird looks. Like, who's this guy? <laughs> you know? uh, yeah, sure, sure. Someone get take that microphone away from him. <laughs> but it, it's fascinating, but it's because it's such a foreign concept. And right. when I actually spoke to some of these executives before, uh, before when I was with the Bureau and after the Bureau, I realized really what it came down to was just, like, it's important, the lack of familiarization. And the other component, too, is, like, you look at the CISO. Many of your listeners who are CISOs know this. The CISO is not even necessarily an executive. I sometimes refer them as a junior executive because many times they'll report to a CIO right, or to the chief legal counsel. So they're not even reporting to the CEO or the board of directors. So in many situations, the CISO was very cooperative. They wanted to help. They're trying to share information. But one of a sudden hits a CIO, or someone above them who has no familiarization with law enforcement, sure. no exposure, then they turn to their chief division counsel. This individual likely never dealt with the United States government because they've been in private practice their entire career. Their focus is civil litigation and protecting the civil assets. Their answer, generally speaking, is no. So then it stops in terms of the collaboration, it never even gets started. And, and that happened right. time and time and time again.
1: And that the, the
0: neighborhood analogy
1: that you threw out, I mean, that, that fits to a T there. So when you're, when you're not reporting to law enforcement, the crime remains somewhat unhidden. I mean, it remains somewhat hidden and it escalates because me as an attacker, you know, I, I see, I'm in, I'm operating in a, in a vertical. I hit one company on the fringes. I see that that technique's working. No one's stopping it. I try another company down the road with the same, the same vertical with the same type of technique. And I just keep farming working my way in and in, in as much as I possibly can into that vertical or that neighborhood until finally I'm at your doorstep hitting your company all because you, no one has reached out, shared information with the law enforcement or a lot of the times not even sharing information
0: with other, the other companies in the verticals. Exactly. And, and many times at the the, like the board director level or CEO level, there's a lot of assumptions. Sure the assumption is, Oh I thought this was happening. And, you know, just depending on the size of the organization, you're looking at large enterprises. That assumption, I think, sometimes is made honestly. Um, But information many times doesn't necessarily relate accurately to that level. Um, The other complicating component is if the board isn't involved and the CISO isn't necessarily reported directly to the board, then those issues aren't necessarily raised. The benefit that everyone's afforded when... Check- so the other component I think is, I'd like to highlight if any of these individuals that are listening um, are concerned about, well, I don't want to lose control. That's a common statement I've heard. Or like you said before, I don't want them to find something I did wrong. right If I invite the FBI in, what if I'm not CPI compliant? Or what if I didn't follow all the requirements put upon me by HIPAA? The key component there, and I think that many of your listeners need to understand, is that... The government good or bad right or wrong is highly delineated law sure. enforcement specifically the fbi or secret service their focus is only the threat actor candidly the fbi would not even recognize a compliance issue because a compliance issue is tied to a regulatory body the fbi is a law enforcement and intelligence arm only so they wouldn't even know and or would you would not know what they're looking at in terms of having some sort of regulatory element, right? Now, if you share, cause you're like, well, hold on. I did share with, you know, the sec or I shared with the IRS because the government's so delineated, there is not a clear channel that information always flows from one person to the next. The best analogy I have of when I think of or when people aren't familiar with the government, think of like a mall. I think when you go to like a shopping mall, And if you were to purchase an item from like the Smoothie King and you're to take that item and they give you the wrong smoothie and you take the Macy's and you tell Macy's, Hey, Macy's, uh, I ordered mango, but this is strawberry. The Macy's clerks don't look at you like you're a weirdo. Like "Uh, we'll go back to Smoothie King. Like, why are you bringing it to me? That in essence is the same as U S government. Now there's, there's examples in this analogy that there's, There's relations. So if you look at like Gap or Banana Republic, they're owned by the same parent company. So there's some elements like that in the mall analogy that's true. And there are some partnerships that will arise. It is situations where like Secret Service or the FBI will develop a collaborative relationship and work together. But there's no guarantee. So I always give that analogy to people who aren't that familiar with the government. Don't make any assumptions because you share with one element of the government that. All other elements of the government are aware of it. They're not, unfortunately.
1: No, I agree. And let me ask you: since, since a lot of companies out there simply don't know, merchants as well, what is the proper process to report to law
0: enforcement? So it's going to depend on the actual crime. If it's if it's anything to do with what most of your listeners are going to be uh, interested in reporting, which are cyber crimes. The best way to report that is to IC3, IC3 ic3.gov. IC3 stands for Internet Crime Complaint Center. That's start there and then contact your local FBI or Secret Service office. Now, I would pick one or the other. Don't do both. Right. Um, So just choose who you would like to report to.
1: Does it matter which one? Is Is there a preference between the two?
0: Uh, <clears throat> I mean, say- for an FBI agent, the preference <laughs> exactly. is going to be the FBI. <laughs> exactly. uh, so candidly, there is a difference. It has to do with the size of the organization and scope of work. One of the criticisms of Secret Service is that their priority is protective detail. So if you're a Secret Service agent working a Secret Service cyber case, All of a sudden, a protected individual like the president comes to the city you're in, you stop everything and you protect the president. The FBI has so many agents, they don't have that same element. So, there's never going to be a situation outside of a dire uh, matter that requires everyone to be there. But there's not an ongoing situation where agents who work in cyber cases have to stop. Agents working in cyber cases in the FBI are dedicated to cyber. Gotcha. That's the one key thing. And again, if you don't, work in either government element you don't know that right so because right. of that i would say the fbi is going to be there's a larger organization there's more resources so i would basically say objectively i would go with the bureau in that regard now again if you have a good relationship with the secret service i do not recommend to stop the relationship and then shift to the fbi I would not recommend that at all but both are good both are good options and it's important to know that that's for federal cyber crimes if it's a local, if someone broke into your business, very different, and naturally you're going to report to the local police department. But if you report a cyber crime to a local police department, they don't have the policing authority to actually effectively invest invest or in, effectively investigate that crime. They're going to have you report up to the federal level. So the best way to do it is IC3, and then again, Secret Service or FBI, and to give them as much information as you can. What I would recommend you do, especially if you're an enterprise or you're a large organization, so may say 100 more or 500 more people you're employed, I would go talk to the FBI and Secret Service before anything happens. I would start building that relationship, and you can just simply again go to like FBI.gov or go to USSecretService.gov and find the number for your local office. Just simply call it. Set up an appointment with the local office You can talk to a cyber investigator or the cyber supervisor and just meet them. And they'll do this, believe it or not. And then you can build that relationship before anything happens. Outstanding. The FBI is really big on doing this because they want to really cultivate that relationship. Because again, I never heard a watch analogy. They want to know when that burglar is there. They want to be able to affect that arrest and prevent that individual or individuals from continuing to victimize other people.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, and, and I, we appreciate you coming on and, and telling us your thoughts on that and how to report a couple more questions before we before we end the interview, but uh, I, I guess the first question is, given your background, given the work that you do now, and it 's great work i mean've that you 've got one hell of a resume. I wish I did <laughs> but I, I think my, my, the, what i 'm wanting to know is what your thoughts are. Where do we see cybercrime, both large scale and smaller scale? Where do we see that in the next three to five years? What's going to be going on?
0: Um, Three to five years. I think ransomware is going to continue to be a problem that's going to plague uh, organizations. I think the heightened emphasis of privacy is going to bring about new focus. Uh, Companies are going to be held to stricter requirements because of GDPR and CCPA. Um, there'll be additional privacy requirements. A lot of those privacy requirements, they're kind of sometimes uh, in line with cyber elements. So there's definitely a, an aspect there that you'll see more reporting. There'll be more structure. I think hopefully that leads to more secure practices. Right. I think uh, another thing in the three, five year timeframe, there will be more people working remotely So that's definitely something else to be mindful of. I I encourage companies to not forget that. I encourage them to, just because your employee isn't in your space anymore and you should focus on giving them tools so they can connect to the network safely, VPNs, think about basically augmenting their current router with a a secure router that your company endorses. Um, Think of helping them secure their home from you know, a home invasion or any type of break-in. Those are all things that you would do if you owned a business, you wanna make sure there's a certain amount of protections in play. But I think people corporations need to be mindful of that. As more and more people work remote, they have to also be mindful of the cyber risk at play in those situations. Sure. Um, fast forward a little bit further, past five years, one of the big things I'm interested to see how companies address this is automation when it comes to uh, drive or vehicles. So automated uh, autonomous driving. That's gonna be fascinating. Um, There's a lot of technology that's involved in and computing power in cars driving themselves. And it's not operational in the cloud. It is on that vehicle. So if you couple that with ransomware, that, that seems highly problematic. Absolutely. Um, that to me is a big concern. And, and I say that because when I was with the Bureau, there are situations I was privy to that a lot of cities are trying to compete with one another to get smart cities up, trying to push the bounds. They want to basically be able to, to brag, hey, we have a truly integrated smart city. Many times when you see those pushes, they're not thinking about security a lot of those vendors they're bringing on aren't necessarily security centric because they're so focused on trying to accomplish the task or get the, you know, get the command from A to B without degradation. They're not thinking about the security elements. That's, that's
1: inter- Not to interrupt, but that's interesting that you said that, you know, what I see on the smaller scale, you know, with apps being developed with a, with a lot of FinTech type stuff is that, you know, you have the engineers that are just interested in getting the product out and they never consider the, uh, the fraud aspects of how a fraudster or a criminal can use that to commit crime. And it's, it's interesting that you, that you've taken that to that large scale. It's, it's very similar to me on that.
0: Yeah. It, it, and it is, and I know, I don't blame them. I was a developer when I was coding before the FBI, I wasn't thinking about security. Sure. I never thought about security. I literally was just trying to perform a task. Uh, the mission was to get data from here to there and to do it where you don't lose any data and there's no degradation. That everything's accurate, that it's functional, I never thought about how to secure it. It's very no, absolutely. Calming. So, Michael, I've
1: got one more question. Right, then I'll, I'll thank you so much for, for appearing. But my question is: you do all this work. It's obvious you work your ass off. It's obvious that you you know exactly what you're talking to. You're 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 an extremely skilled, beyond competent person. What do you do on your time off?
0: <laughs> oh, time off. Oh, boy. Well, I have two beautiful babies. Oh, uh, so, I spend time with them. It's funny. A friend of mine, I said that to him literally yesterday. He looks at me and goes, you know, you say they're babies, but they're not babies. <laughs> how old he, are they? They're five and uh, three. Sorry. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. <laughs> but I see them as babies in my eyes. Well, sure. Uh, they'll be babies forever. But I, they take up a lot of my time, uh, my downtime. Most of the time, though, I don't have a lot of downtime because like, I'm working on various different initiatives or projects. Um, you know, starting this new position. I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I want to make sure I'm as valuable as I possibly can be to the organization. I do a lot of speaking engagements sure. outside of the company. I, I love doing those. They're fun for me. Um, so that takes up a lot of my downtime. That's kind of like, believe it or not, it's kind of crazy as I say that. It's actually one of those things I enjoy doing. Same here. (laughs) We're alike on that. That's awesome. So it's like, if you have like an audience of like 5,000 people and I think Brett, you and I would agree. We love those environments. Like I love to be on stage. Absolutely. So if, it's, if some people, right, they're terrified because the opposite? It's like, no, I don't this, I don't stage. <laughs> my wife is that way, but I love it. So, oh, anyway. I eat it. I, I mean,
1: I eat it up. I, I, it's like I was built for that kind of thing. You know, I absolutely yeah. love it. I really and do.
0: You might not know this, but I actually saw you on stage in Atlanta when I was with the Bureau. Uh, one of my fellow uh, supervisors, Chad Hunt, he, yes. invited you, he invited you to come out and speak to the, um, the Atlanta office. And you did a phenomenal job, by the way. Thank you. Uh, thank you for phenomenal saying Phenomenal presentation. I, I'm not saying that lightly because I'm very critical of presenters, but you're good. Thank and you. so uh, you're, you're good, you're craft. But anyway, um, just FYI. Well, well,
1: Michael, again, thank you for the kindness. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for coming on the show. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate just you taking the time out to talk to us and the information you've given
0: us. Thank you so much. Of course, again, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to chat with you and your audience. Thank you.
1: That's it for today's episode of the Online Fraudcast. Thank you for joining me. I hope you've learned a lot. You know, we've got so many of these topics to cover to help protect you and your company from fraud. So please subscribe to the Online Fraudcast to be alerted to when a new episode is out. Please tell your friends and family Rate and review us wherever you can to help others find out about us so we can increase awareness and protect everyone that we possibly can. Also, we want to hear about what you love and what you don't love about the online broadcast. We need to know how to improve our show, and we need to know what topics you would like us to talk about. You can find us online at www.onlinefraudcast.com, on Facebook at the online broadcast, or individually on LinkedIn. Until next time. Stay informed, stay vigilant, and stay secure.